Welcome to E2 Talks. It's a podcast where we chat about the English language landscape. In this episode, Alex is joined by Associate Professor Dr. Uten Nock, Director of Melbourne University's internationally renowned Language Testing Research Centre. They discuss the research that goes into high-stakes language tests like IELTS, TOEFL and OET, how reliable those tests are and how candidates can best prepare for them. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode. My name is Alex from E2 Language and today I'm joined by uh, Associate Professor Uta Nock from the Language Testing Research Centre at Melbourne University and very accomplished and respected researcher in the field of language assessment. Thank you so much for joining me, Uta. Oh, you're welcome. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your background um, in the assessment field and also your role at the Language Testing Research Centre? Okay, so I'm a language assessment specialist. I'm also the director of the Language Testing Research Centre, or short LTRC. And at the um, LTRC, we're involved in a variety of projects. So we develop and validate language tests for English and also other languages for various purposes. So, for example, diagnostic tests or placement tests or tests for the screening of language proficiency for various professional purposes. And we also carry out research on language tests and assessment. Um, other key tasks that we do is to provide training in language testing and assessment, for example, for teachers or other professionals. The reason is that teachers often do not receive a lot of training in language assessment as part of their teaching degrees or their teacher training. And we therefore help out with providing short courses or workshops and so on. And another role of the LTRC is to provide policy advice and advocate for appropriate test use and testing practices. So we work on a real variety of things. Mm. Can I ask what you're working on at the moment in terms of research? Um, oh, there's a variety of projects, um, a couple of grants um, that have been funded by large testing agencies. We're also evaluating a suite of placement tests that we use here at the University of Melbourne to place students into the various languages so that we have tests for nine languages, mm. doing a large scale evaluation of those and yeah, test development for various projects as mm. well. It's an interesting time right now in, I guess, in the world in general, but in language assessment too, as a lot of tests are looking to move online and also the at-home versions of some of the big tests. Maybe we'll come back and talk about that a little later in our chat. Um, so let's start by talking about language tests, maybe the big, the high stakes ones, IELTS, TOEFL, OET. And there's a lot of students would ask, why do I have to take a language test, particularly you know, in a field like um, medicine where they may have passed all the tests they need to pass. Why do we need language tests? So language tests are used for a large variety of purposes. So this is not an easy and quick thing to answer. And it really depends on the context of the test. So um, teachers may use an end of term test to see whether students have learned the material in a language course or a professional registration body might stipulate a minimum score on a language test for overseas trained professionals who want to register in a, in a different country. A university may require a language test score for students who have not previously studied in the language of instruction. A school may also use a placement test to place students into the most suitable language program. 
or a government may require a minimum score for new migrants wishing to enter the country. So what all these situations have in common is that they're kind of transition points for people from one context to the other. So people may move to a new country, they may start a new job in a new context, or they may move into a new instructional context. And that's often where language tests come in. And these language tests are used for various reasons. They may be used maybe to contain a certain risk. So, for example, there's a risk that a doctor who's entering a workplace in a new country may not understand the language there well enough and they might make a mistake when they're practicing. Another reason is that a test might be used to sort people in a specific way, maybe to allow for best teaching practices so that students are in the best program, the best level that they can be taught at. Or in the case for university entrance, the minimum score is seen as necessary to ensure that students can succeed. So the universities might argue that they might not want to take students who are at risk at failing because that would be unfair to the students. But it might also be unfair to the other students in the class or the lecturers. So mm. there are various reasons why language tests are used. Mm. I read in your book that you co-wrote with um, Tim McNamara and, and Jason Fan that the tests can sometimes be a kind of gatekeeping device for governments as well. And the score can go up and down depending on how many immigrants or foreign workers a government wants at a particular time. Yeah, that's right. And and often there's no real rationale in terms of the score they stipulate. So they might raise it, you know, quite significantly just to, you know, reduce the numbers that are coming in and the actual score that they're setting is not based on any research. It's more, you know, we want fewer people to come in. But, you know, that's maybe not a use of test score that we would think makes sense. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of other reasons that you know, we could endorse and, mm. and could be empirically based, backed up as well. Mm -hmm. And how does a, an organisation or a testing body um, like Cambridge or ETS or um, those sort of groups, how do they decide on the content of a test? So when it comes to TOEFL, for instance, or OET, how do they choose what tasks they're going to use? What skills are they going to test? How long will the test be? So that really depends, again, on the purpose of the test. So if a test is used at the end of a course, for example, then the test content would usually reflect what's been taught in a curriculum. But if a test is not linked directly to an instructional course, then test developers may draw on what's called a needs analysis. So during a needs analysis, the test developer would examine the language that a test taker might have to use in the real world. So for example, when they enter a university or if they enter a workplace, they would then sample typical tasks from this real-world domain for the test and, and include those tasks in the test. Of course, they're usually modified because real-world tasks aren't really ideal usually for, for a testing context. And um, the test developers would also probably consider what sort of information the school users may need and develop the test in such a way that the test yields that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And they may also examine what sort of tasks may be particularly problematic for test takers when they enter the real world. And in particular, if these tasks pose a high risk, then they might consider including such tasks, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And when you, I think you did some research on the OET writing test, is that right? It, that involved talking to 
professionals in the field and ad- adjusting the tests to to meet what they consider the basic necessities of written communication in that field. Is that the kind of thing that other tests would be doing, like IELTS, like TOEFL? Yeah, that's right. I mean, most um, tests would have a kind of program of research that underpins them, and all the testing programs do this a little bit differently. But I guess one of the the aims of that is to ensure that the test is, you know, valid and you know, whatever the purpose of the test is, that the test is achieving that as best as possible. And for the OET, that program that we undertook of research that was aimed at making the the scoring criteria more professionally relevant, so that we're actually not um, assessing just through the lens of what maybe a linguistically trained rater might find important, but actually through the lens of what a health professional might find important when they're reading a piece of writing or hearing some spoken discourse. Mm. It's quite it's quite a unique test, the OET, and that fairly radical change of adding in the um, clinical communication criteria really differentiates it now from the other language tests. Um, yeah, I think obviously that's a really positive move. Do you think it was well received by the test candidates? Well, actually, I'm not really sure. I don't know if anyone has examined that, but I hope that they do see that it's making the test more relevant to them. Mm. And certainly the test preparation that comes before the test is improved, I think, thanks to those changes in criteria so that it's not about, yeah, it's not focusing on just very um, minute details. They're really working on how to be a better medical professional in an English-speaking context. Well, I hope so. And in in some ways, that's what language testing should always aim for, that there's what we call positive washback, so that we kind of achieve positive, um, you know, learning outcomes or teaching outcomes in in preparation for the test as well. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the term a bit more, what washback is? Yeah, so test developers try to develop language tests in such a way that they have positive washback or a positive influence on teaching and learning, like I just said. So the idea is to develop test items in such a way that if test takers prepare for the test, that they engage in some sort of positive learning activity that actually result in language learning, rather than just learning how to crack the test or the item. So, for example, in a, in a series of interviews that we did a few years ago with overseas trained health professionals who were preparing for the OET, a couple of test takers reported how helpful the preparation for the test has been, was for them in understanding how healthcare you know, happens in Australian workplaces. So the, the mere act of preparing for the test had actually helped these, unders- these candidates understand better what tasks are conducted in Australian healthcare settings and how are they conducted in Australian healthcare settings, which might be quite different to where they came from. Mm. This is an example of a positive washback, but there's also, of course, negative washback. And this happens, for example, when a school curriculum is narrowed to prepare students for a test rather than for broader set of skills. So that is kind of negative washback of a test. Mm, Yeah, I think here at E2, obviously being in the test preparation space, that's something we're conscious of and that we see a lot uh, among our students who come and ask us, just give me a template or just give me the list of words that I can memorise that's going to get me this score. And sometimes we have to undo a lot of those bad habits that they they come with. And uh, yeah, and try to make it more broadly about improving language, not just finding the hacks. 
Yeah, and I think that's it's actually quite interesting. Quite quite a number of years back in the 80s, um, an influential educational researcher called Messick listed a number of different ways or types of test preparation. He gave them kind of numbers and he said type one is test preparation that actually improves relevant aspects of language ability and so does not threaten the validity of the scores that the test takers get sub subsequently. Type 2 preparation improves the scores by reducing construct irrelevance interferences. So, for example, the, um, if a test taker is very unfamiliar with a test task or they have test anxiety, so that type of preparation is also beneficial to score validity. But he said type 3 preparation, which improves test scores by enhancing construct irrelevant test taking skills. So, for example, by learning sample answers off mm -hmm. by heart, or by learning techniques to gaming the scoring mechanism, that's sort of what shouldn't happen in test preparation. And mm. so he advocated for test preparation teachers to focus on type one and type two preparation. And I think that really makes sense still today. Yeah, yeah, I think that it can sometimes be a battle where students often very desperate to pass a test. You know, it's a huge obstacle in their life standing in the way of immigration or um, professional development but um yeah ultimately a good language test tests good language so that's you know it's not just learning exactly a template we actually undertook quite an interesting study on um, test preparation for the PTE academic a few years back where we followed test takers or we interviewed test takers who'd all taken the test like many, many times mm -hmm. to, to get to the score they needed and we asked them so we got their score reports for each instance and we also asked them how they prepared and what we found was that they often changed their test preparation practices over time so they started by just getting familiar with the test so often they took the test in the beginning without any preparation and then they went very heav heavily into test familiarization techniques mm -hmm. and then if that didn't get them the score then they often um, tried to kind of crack the test and if that didn't work in the end they often just ended up you know improving their language so <laughs> the last one resort. Test preparation and you know we couldn't see the whole kind of um steps in all of the test takers but a lot of them went through them especially those who take many many tests so it's very interesting it's actually I think about to be published later this year, the study. Ah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I think PTE is a, is a real zone for that type of mm. preparation, be maybe mm -hmm. because it's, it was one of the first computer delivered and it's scored, obviously, by exactly. magic. <laughs> and so yeah. students are just seeking that, yeah, that, that code that they can crack That's for right. it. And they spend a lot of energy on figuring out how the scoring works, which is understandable. Yeah, yeah, but it's actually, yeah, it's quite opaque, isn't it? Mm. So in terms of an organisation, maybe a university or a medical board or whatever, how do they choose the cutoff scores? You mentioned that sometimes they just go up and down fairly randomly, but if they're doing it in the, in the right way, what sort of things would they do to determine basically a pass from a fail? Yeah, look, I think there are pretty much two ways this happens for high stakes tests. They're either, the cut scores um, are either set through a formal standard setting workshop, which I will describe in a moment, mm -hmm. or the second uh, way is by following what another similar organization is doing, which is probably the most common ways that's 
<laughs> that cut scores are set. So best practice would suggest that one should um, conduct a standard setting workshop. And in such a workshop, key stakeholders are gathered together in a room. It's usually in a room, but it can also be done electronically. And they are asked to work through a series of procedures to arrive at these cut scores. So, for example, for a university entrance test, one might gather 20 academics in a room. They might be from a range of disciplines and they all have experience teaching first year undergraduate students. And then they, they go through procedures um, in this workshop. So, for example, to set a cut score on a writing test or subtest, one might ask the academics to look through writing samples from test takers at different score levels. And they would be asked to indicate which of the test takers who've provided these samples would be ready to enter their program. And the same could be done for speaking performances. Or in the case of reading and listening, the academics would actually be asked to complete the listening or reading test and then judge whether a minimally competent student may be able to complete each of the individual items or what the chance is that they could complete these items. Mm. And there's a lot of different methods to do these, so I'm only describing this quite vaguely, but after these procedures, there are statistical techniques that are used to arrive at the cut score, mm. and it also goes through several rounds usually. So standard setting, as you can sort of get a feel from this process, is socially mediated. So the results will always depend on the sample of stakeholders that you gather and also which standard setting technique you use. But at least it's an empirical way to do it. Mm. The second way of setting cut scores where you just follow what another organization is doing is probably the most common way. But actually, it's probably, you know, it's just not as as um, empirical and and defensible, but it, because standard setting requires expertise and time and is costly, mm. it's often not actually conducted because you can't, you know, not each in university can set scores on each individual test because it just costs so much money. Mm. So they often follow each other. And if one lowers the score, then, you know, another one might do too to attract more students or... <laughs> <laughs> there are all uh, sorts of considerations. That can be come. a real weapon, a language test. Yeah, although, I mean, there's always other paths to show your language proficiency, and those mm. often get less, um, you know, get scrutinised less. Mm. So to enter universities in Australia, you might, you know, end up taking your school leaving certificate in Australia, so you might arrive already a year or two earlier. Mm -hmm. You might ent enter a language school and go through a direct entry pathway. You know, there's lots of different ways to show your language proficiency, and the language test is just one of them. Mm. It's good to keep that in mind. Mm. Um, just talking on test development and quality, I'll just read a quote from, from your book, Fairness, Justice and Language Assessment. Um, it said, test score validation depends heavily on the ability to investigate the quality of tests and the inferences about individuals drawn from them. So you've, you've kind of answered this already, um, but how, how do the big high stakes tests prove to the world that their test is valid and reliable uh, to the candidates as well? How do they prove that? Yeah, so test developers should be engaging in an ongoing kind of program of validation of their tests. And I think most of them do that. Mm. And in fact, that process should actually start right from the point when the test is being developed, when 
you know, the, the best process would be that the consequences the test should have or, or that we desire should be set up right at the beginning as a key consideration. And in test validation, we focus on establishing whether the claims that we can make about a test taker based on their scores can actually be supported. And to do that, we examine the quality of tests themselves, but we also see how tests fit into the claims that we want to make. And there are a number of different aspects that we examine. So, for example, we might look at whether the test instructions are clear to test takers, mm -hmm. whether the raters who are scoring the performances can do so reliably. So can we interchange the raters and the test takers would still get the same results? Does the test include a representative selection of relevant tasks from the domain? Are the tasks eliciting the kind of knowledge and processes from the test takers that we have envisaged? Are these tasks measuring what test takers actually need to do in the real world? Is the test sorting candidates into the right levels? And also are the consequences of the test as we have intended? So there's lots and lots of mm. questions I could add to this list you know, quite considerably, that these are the sort of things we look at during validation. And it's important also that the questions change for every different test purpose. So mm -hmm. a test provider, for example, like IDP, who, who looks after IELTS, they, they would have a different program of validation for each test purpose, or at least they should have. So that's mm. what best practice is. Mm. It's interesting to know there's such... I think when students see a language test and, and even as a teacher and, and working in language assessment myself, it, it all seems you don't really give any thought to what, what's gone into the test development. It's just, you know, this is a reading test and this is the score that you need. But the the work that goes into every single question that's in that reading test and the way that that, that question is tested before it goes live to the students is quite incredible, quite an eye-opener for me as well. And I think when I studied with you last year, what, what really uh, was interesting to me was the sort of gray area around what we are testing. So what is reading? What is listening? What are the skills that underpin it? And there's not really a consensus on that. So there's there's a real variety of opinions yeah, when it comes fine. to that, that stuff yeah. as well, where we just assume it's a reading test, testing reading. But yeah, when you dig into it, there's there's a lot more going on. Yeah, that's right. It's really quite complex. And, you know, the knowledge around this evolves and language testing hasn't really even been around as a discipline for that long. So, you know, there's new knowledge being generated all the time in different types of tests. And so it's really an interesting area. And you're right, it's often overlooked how much technical competence and everything goes into it. Mm. Quite expensive, really, to, to develop a good language test. Yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned a bit before about rate, different raters. Um, I imagine that humans themselves are one of the the threats to the reliability of a test score, the fact that one speaking examiner may give quite a different score to another speaking examiner. How, what, what are some of the, the risks or the threats to a score not really being reliable? Yeah, so there's there's a number of different threats. I'm, I'm going to just mention a couple. So for, for, for example, there's construct underrepresentation. So earlier I mentioned that a test developer often draws on a needs analysis to examine the domain that a test taker, that the test is designed to predict to. 
And let's just imagine we do a needs analysis and we identify three key tasks that happen in the domain that are kind of crucial to the test taker, you know, being successful in the domain, but we only include one of these in the test, then mm. we are very much underrepresenting the real world domain in the test. And that's a threat to the, the validity of the scores. And um, of course, we can never really include all the different key real world tasks in a test because a test would be far too long and it's not practical. So it's up to the test developer to identify what is included and justifying these tasks in light of how well we can, you know, capture the construct that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. So an, an example may be um, for the IELTS exam, for example, preparing students for university, but one of the tasks is to write essentially what's a high school kind of essay to give your own opinion on something rather than synthesize information from sources or to support based on on research but is that just a matter of the the practicality of a language test that well i guess if the if the if ielts had undertaken which i assume they have and they undertaken needs analysis and they found that the most common task is writing from input material maybe reading in texts or lectures you know and then writing an essay and if they've decided for some reason not to include that task in their test then they're underrepresenting the construct very much if this is a key task. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's right. But I, you know, I don't know whether they have undertaken this analysis or not. I'm mm-hmm. not familiar with that particular research of theirs. Mm-hmm. But there's other threats to test quality. So there's an, another one called construct irrelevance. So this happens when a score is dependent on a skill that's not part of what we had intended to measure. So, for example, if in a listening test, the test takers get marks deducted for incorrect spelling in their answers, and mm. this can be considered construct irrelevant because it's not really directly part of the listening construct, whether you can spell a word correctly. Mm. And we've already spoken about... Um, Oh, sorry, and there's actually another source of construct um, construct underrepresentation that I didn't m- mention earlier. It's also related to scoring. So if, for example, um, a test is using an automated scoring mechanism to score writing, for example, but that scoring engine is merely focused on grammatical and spelling errors because it isn't able to you know, assess other aspects like organization or coherence or cohesion and things like that, then that's also a construct under representation, not so much in the tasks that we set for the students, but how we score them. And that also has an impact on the school, obviously. Mm. And reliability, it can focus on whether the writers are writing kind of reliably and interchangeably. But it can also look at, um, we should also look at the reliability of listening and reading subtests. So it's important that those are reliable and we cannot achieve that usually with less than maybe at least 25 questions in a, in a subtest. So that's something that teachers often don't know about. They might think if they have a reading test with only six items that they can measure reading, but it's probably not possible. You need more items to have a reliable test. So that's another important aspect. Why is that? Why do you need so many questions? Because to get a stable indication of what test takers can do, you just need more information. Mm-hmm. So you need, uh, you know, at least probably around 25 items that are all measuring the same underlying skill. If you have fewer items, 
there's just a chance that what you're capturing is not enough and not sufficient and mm-hmm. you know, another set of six items might give you a different result. Mm. And all of those questions um, have, serve a purpose as well. They're sort of questions that you would expect a large proportion of the candidates to get correct and then there are more discriminating tasks within it, so some that you would expect only the very high-level um, candidates yeah, would get so that right? That's right. I mean, it depends a lot on the type of test again. So if the mm. purpose is if an achievement test at the end of the course, then you actually want or hope that your students who've covered the skills in your class would be able to answer the questions. Mm, right. In a proficiency test, you would include a kind of variety of items that some that are a bit easier, some that are a bit more difficult so that you're able to kind of spread students into their different proficiency levels. So it really depends a lot on the on the um, purpose of the test, how you design the items as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the, the changes now, as we mentioned before, the at-home versions that are uh, appearing for TOEFL's got one, OET's developing one, IELTS have a version of one. Do you think this sort of increases the the problems around language testing? How do, how do test organisations ensure that you know, students are doing the right thing, they're not cheating or not um, looking up the answers elsewhere? Do you think this is a good move for language testing or a risky one? Well, I guess they have to do this at the moment because otherwise students can't take the tests and universities, for example, are crying out for Mm. having some sort of good measures of the student's language proficiency before they enter. But they, of course, have the problem that they, you know, if students can take the test at home, they need to build in some sort of proctoring devices and of course, there's always ways, you know, <laughs> to, to cheat. But I think the problem is also similar if people come into a test center. So it's not completely bulletproof what they do. I, I think they all had to react to these changes and they're doing their best. Mm. Some are doing a better job than others. But I think that's also because some tests were sort of further mm. down the road of being computer delivered, you know, already before the whole virus crisis came up. So they had to all move very, very quickly. And I'm sure they're all going to continue working in this area and improving mm. processes. The sort of proctoring, you know, of, of um, students taking tests at home is not really my area of expertise. I focus more on what goes into the language test, but it's, as you say, it's, it's very important. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it'll be, I mean, it would certainly open up the, um, the possibilities for students like the OET, for instance, if there's no test centre in their country, but suddenly they can take the test at home, that's that's a huge opportunity for a, for a lot of people. So yeah, and I think that's also always been an argument of the providers of the Duolingo tests mm. to, you know, always said that that's one of the beauties that anyone can take it somewhere in Africa on their phone, you know, mm. so they're able to reach much further. But of course, there, there's the flip side that the test still has to measure relevant abilities or otherwise, you know, the kind of predictions that you can make about the students or the inferences that you can make about them is limited. So, you know, it's a it's a difficult balance. Hmm. Uh, I want to just go back and talk a bit more about the OET research that you did. Was it in particular in the writing area or all of the skills? 
Um, well, there's two projects that I can talk about in a little bit more detail uh, that relate to writing. There's another project that we've recently completed that I can mention that was um, about the relevance of the RET to nursing. So, um, so you know, as you know, the occupational English test is a screening test for overseas health professionals and the RET tries to ensure that the test is as relevant to the various health professions as possible and ongoing work mainly focuses on ensuring that this is the case. A few years ago there was a study that was led by my colleague Susie McQueen who set out to examine the writing demands of various health professions and the aim was to examine whether the writing task is still relevant because you know workplaces change over the years. So the project considered the following three aspects. It was what writing tasks do health professionals carry out regularly, what qualities are seen as most important in these tasks, and what methods of writing were used to carry out these tasks. And the study drew on interviews and then also a larger scale survey and concluded that the writing tasks of the OET was largely relevant to the various health professions that take the OET. There was obviously changes in how um, the methods of writing. So a lot more health professionals were writing um, online, their referral mm -hmm. documents, but largely it was seen as, you know, the, the, the study supported the task at the time. Mm -hmm. And more recently, we conducted two different studies that were related that were designed to update the scoring criteria used for the speaking and writing subtests. Mm -hmm. Up to that point, the criteria were largely linguistic in nature, and the project set out to discover what health professionals, rather than linguistic experts, value in spoken and written health communication. So, for example, for the writing project, the, the study was conducted by a multidisciplinary team. And in the first stage, 100 redacted patient records were collected from two hospitals. We then extracted the handover letters, and those were referral letters or discharge summaries, mm -hmm. and selected some that were used in the next stage of the study. And in that stage, we asked doctors and nurses in small groups to judge these letters that we gave to them and say what they thought were the strengths and weaknesses mm -hmm. in these documents. And then we extracted those kind of values. And based on that data, we carefully created a set of new scoring criteria for the OET writing tasks. And we then trialed that with writers and so on. Mm. So it's quite a large scale three year project. And, wow. and I believe they're now being used by the OET center in their tests. So that's mm. Was it a matter of starting with an enormous list of, of skills and values and, and slowly working down into the final criteria? Or was it fairly clear well, we, we, so we transcribed what the doctors and nurses um, said in when, when they were looking at these documents and we sort of grouped what they mentioned into different criteria and they talked about things that were maybe not directly related to the piece of writing. Mm -hmm. So it's not something one could ever judge in a writing sample. So those things were kind of ignored and everything that related directly to the piece of writing we grouped into different categories and there were some aspects that we couldn't incorporate into the um, scoring criteria because they were not directly relevant to a language test. So for example, when they looked at these real referral letters mm -hmm. from the hospital, they might've said, oh, this was obviously not written at the time of the discharge of the patient, but weeks later. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, that's not really relevant to scoring a test task, but it's interesting because they pick <laughs> things up. But that was not the sort of thing we could include because obviously a test taker gets some artificial scenario and writes the letter then and there when they're asked to do it. Mm. So we, we group, you know, we, we had all these different criteria and we could select the majority of them we could put into the scoring criteria and we then worked with um, experienced OET raters to kind of nut out how we could create the different levels mm-hmm. of the scoring criteria and trialed them. Yeah. Mm. So it's a huge undertaking to overhaul um, a criteria like that, all the people that have to be trained then and all the, I guess, the candidates who have to yeah. then be educated in a different way. Was was this um, driven by OET themselves or from an external yeah, it was a, a jointly funded study. So it was mm-hmm. a Australian Research Council linkage project, which means that the Australian Research Council funded some part of this. The OET Centre funded a part of it and Melbourne University provided our time to the project. So they're kind of three three funding partners. And yeah, as I said, it was over three years. So you're right, it's a very expensive undertaking. Mm. Yeah, but I think I think the results are, have been well received from from what I've seen of of markers and also of students taking the test. I think it's been a really positive step. Well, that's good that's to a hear. Good test. Mm. Yeah, we recently also did a study with um, where we examined the relevance of the OET to nurses mm-hmm. who are entering the workplace or have recently entered the workplace, and we, you know, we asked them about how they prepared for the OET and you know, how relevant they thought the different OET tasks were to their work now as a nurse in an Australian workplace. So there were some interesting findings there too. And hopefully we can publish on that in the near future as well. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I'd love to find out from um, candidates who take the PTE and and IELTS and TOEFL whether <laughs> whether they report back. Yeah, we're actually doing a similar study for the PTE at the moment. Oh, but okay. that's very much happening. So yeah. yeah. Oh, I look forward to reading all about that when it's done. Mm. So just finally, I guess, as an um, assessment expert yourself, what, what advice for would you give to our students who are preparing for a high-stakes language test? I think it's really important to become really familiar with the test tasks so that, you know, when they go into the assessment that there are no surprises to them, that mm. they don't get anxious. But I think the key um, preparation should really focus on improving language ability rather than trying to learn responses off by heart or something like that because it actually doesn't work. It's been shown. And there are even some language testers who said that all the test questions should just be made available <laughs> because the, the learning off by heart doesn't actually work. It doesn't improve scores, examiners mm. notice, and it just doesn't, you know, canned responses, as we call them, it just doesn't help in any way. So that they really should focus on, you know, understanding how the t- what the tasks asked of them and then improving their language ability if they're finding they have problems with their reading and really focusing on practicing your reading rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent advice. I agree completely (laughs) with that as well. Well, thank you so much. And um, where can people find your work if they're interested in reading your books? We'll put a link to to your book in, you've got a couple of books actually, we'll put the links in our um, 
podcast notes, but is there anywhere else students could look and teachers as well if they're interested in learning more about language well, assessment? Well, they can find information about all of the work that happens at the Language Testing Research Centre on our website. I think that's the best place. There is a list of publications and the projects we work on. So it's probably the best place. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And having taken the course with you last year, the Professional Certificate in Language Assessment, I can also highly recommend that to any of my colleagues who are interested in upskilling yeah, in that field. Yeah, I recommend that too. Actually, I think it's a, a, a nicely paced introduction to, you know, for anyone interested in learning more about language assessment teachers or people who suddenly find themselves working in a, in, in a, with a test provider or in a language school in a, in, in a kind of assessment role because there is so little training on it in mm. teacher training courses. This actually, I think we, we developed it in a way that we hope it sort of fills the gap. So mm. I can recommend that course, yeah. And 100% online, even better? That's right, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing oh, all that you know. Mm -hmm. Thanks thank for you. having me. Pleasure, thanks a lot. Okay, see you. Bye. Thanks for listening to E2 Talks. Remember to check out e2language.com for IELTS, TOEFL and OET courses. Also check out e2school.com for general English language learning. Thanks.